All right, good morning. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Hannibal. I'm one of the pastors, teaching pastors uh, here for the church. And as always, it is, it's always such a blessing to, uh, to be here and spend time with you guys, opening God's Word and allowing His Word to speak into our hearts. Um, as you heard, we start in Advent se- uh, season, and, and for this uh, season, we, we, we have this series in which we are looking into, the, into five different groups of people, in some cases just an individual, uh, that, that are somehow directly connected to Jesus' birth. And what we learn from that is that in every single one of those circumstances, in every single one of those encounters, the Lord was teaching something to that specific person, uh, regardless of their background or regardless of what they were going through and regardless of anything and everything. Um, so whatever they needed at that time during Jesus' birth is the same thing that we need today as we celebrate Advent. So I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading for Luke chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to uh, 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to uh, 38. If you are here with me, could you please say Amen. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Verse 29. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendant forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Lord, as we open up scripture, I I pray that uh, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, you speak to us this morning. Knowing, Lord, that Advent is much more than lights and much more than celebrations and is much more than gifts and is much more than everything that we do. It's much more than the credit card credit cards we're going to use. It's about Jesus' birth and how his birth changed everything, including Mary's life. Please help us to see and understand Advent through her own experience. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And we all say, you may be seated. So um, for today, um, the way I want to handle Mary's narrative is to 
is to, uh, actually three points, really simple points. We want to know the person. We want to see what was the process, how she processed everything that she went through. And at the end, we want to see what was the, re- the result of everything that she, that she went through. The person, the process, and the result. So just to start, how many of you guys are familiar uh, with, with this narrative we just read? Please raise your hand. Okay, because this is such a famous passage. This is part of the issue during Advent series. For those of us that preach every Advent series, we're saying, okay, what else can we preach that we have not preached for the last 10 years, right? Um, that, that's a good question. But the reality is that regardless of what, how creative we want to be, we always land in the same passages with the same people because those are the passages that talk about Jesus' uh, birth. So we have to address them. What I want to do today, though, is because you are familiar with this story, I would like you to uh, try to ignore what you think you know about the passage. All right? As much as you can, try to ignore what you think you know about the passage. One of the struggles that we have, especially if you have been a Christian for a while and you have heard a lot of sermons and stuff like this, is that, number one, you assume that you know the text, which nothing wrong there. But the problem is that when you assume that you know the text, you easily ignore things that are extremely important in the text, number one. And number two, um, that, that the tendency is not to want to be eager to learn more. Today, interesting enough, I think that Advent, especially in the narrative of Mary, has to do with learning how to think. And you would say, What? And I would say, one of the main lessons that we can learn from this woman is that she teaches us how to think. And Advent, at the end of the day, is about thinking, thinking right. Before we do that then, let's go to the first point, the person. Because in order for us to process the whole thing well, we need to understand who Mary is and what she's going through. From a human perspective, don't think of Mary as this super you know, highly qualified spiritual being that is short of being human. But what I want you to see is how, um, how human she was. All right, so the text says in verse 26 that she comes from, a, from the town of Nazareth. Now, um, what we know, though, is that, that Nazareth, uh, and actually it says from Galilee, but it said that we know that this is almost like a little town. The word city there, actually, is the, word, the same word that we use for a little town. So yeah, a village will be. And we know also that this woman, this Mary girl, is about 15-year-old, um, and, and she lives in this little town. And being a young girl means that everyone in this community knows about her. So everyone knows her parents, her relatives, her history, her background. Everyone, just like any other village. In a village, everyone knows everyone. And that's Mary. Now, in that culture and at that time, part of the reason why they lived in these little villages is because that was a way in which you supported one another. So if you want to understand the concept of family in the New Testament, you've got to see how these people lived. Actually, they live together because they consider it to be um, kind of a family thing. Now, the text also says that she was an excellent woman. And I don't think that's a, that's a coincidence. Uh, I think that there's a, there's a reason why the Bible describes this woman like this. It's because she's known in her community as a woman of godly character. That's what that means. It's a woman that has been faithful to God. It's a woman that has fulfilled everything that the law required of her at that time. It's a woman that is worthy of admiration. 
This is where the Protestant church will walk away from the Catholic belief, in which we know that even though she was an excellent woman, we still know that she was a sinner. And I'll make my point later on why I'm saying that. Now, this is when, when we think of Mary, we've got to think of a woman that is worth of our admiration and respect. 15-year-old girl that was admired by everyone in her town. Well-behaved, loved, respected, worthy of admiration. And verse 27 says that she was pledged to be married. Now, you need to understand the context here because when we think about someone being pledged in our times, we, are, we think of uh, something like engagement. But there's a huge difference between their engagement and our engagement. In our engagement, you promise that you, you're, you're thinking that you're going to get married with somebody, right? But it, the way I describe it is you, you get into this relationship, into, into the next step of a relationship, but you always leave the, the back door open. That's usually what engagement means, meaning that we are planning to get married, but if something goes wrong, I got a place to run. And supposedly, in, uh, the way you do this, right, is once you get married, you close that door, which is not true in our culture either. But when you think of something, when you think of Mary, you have to erase that way of thinking. Because someone that was pledged to be married literally means someone that is almost married. Actually, in her heart and in Joseph's heart, they were married already. And this uh, pledge time took about a year, um, in which this year they're technically married, but they cannot sleep together just yet because they need to suffer for a whole year before they actually get married. Now, the interesting thing here, though, is that the engagement cannot be broken. So when, when Mary says that she's pledged to be married, means that she cannot walk away from Joseph. And that Joseph, to a certain degree, cannot walk away from her. Now, Young girl, 15-year-old girl, more or less, respected, admired, loved, known by her entire community, and someone that is already engaged, soon to be married, technically married. Now, in verse 28, the Gabriel comes to her, and he says, greetings, you highly favored, the Lord is with you. Now, that phrase, favored there, is an important word, because he's saying this, and this is where I know that Mary was a sinner. Because the word favor is where we get the, the word grace from. Meaning that God, the angel is telling her that she is a recipient of God's grace. If you are a recipient of God's grace, meaning that means that you're not earning anything from God, that you're not working anything from God, that there's nothing you could do for God to do something, that everything he gives you is out of grace. Free grace. And this is how the, the, uh, the angel Gabriel speaks to this woman. And she understands that whatever she is going to receive from God is something that she does not deserve. That's important to keep in mind. Mary knows that she's just a sinner like everybody else. And whatever God is giving her is because of grace. She was the object of grace. Actually, the same thing is repeated in verse 30 when it says... For you have found favor with God is the same thing. You have found grace with God. And then it says, the Lord is with you. And that's very important because the angel is about to tell her something that doesn't make any sense. 
And before he delivers the message, he tells her that regardless of what she goes through, the Lord will be with her. Now, let's stop there for a second. Because I want you to try to think, I try to put yourself in her shoes. Before, before knowing anything, all right? Try to think, this, this had to be a crazy, crazy moment. Um, for two main reasons. Number one, because it's an angel talking to her. I don't know how you feel if an angel talks to you, but that's kind of crazy. And number two, because the Lord has not spoken to anybody for 400 years prior to this. Everyone knows that in that culture. Everyone knew this in this culture. Everyone knew everything about this, that the Lord stopped talking to people 400, through prophets 400 years be, uh, ago. So when you have this young girl hearing this message from the angel, you got to think what's going on through her, what's going on in her head. And this is the reason why in verse 29 it says that she was greatly troubled. The word greatly troubled there means extremely confused. Extremely confused because an angel was speaking to her, because the angel told her that she's a recipient of God's grace, and because something major is about to happen. And that confusion turns into fear. That's why in verse 30 says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have favor with God. Do not be afraid, Mary. Now, at this moment, Mary does not know what the angel is going to tell her. At this moment, she does not know what the angel is going to tell her. We know what the angel tells her because we already read it in verses 31 and 32. But if you really want to understand what, what's happening here, try to, once again, try to put yourself in her shoes. And this is what she knows once the angel tells her that she's going to have a baby and that he's not going to be with Joseph. And that for some miracle of God, she's going to be pregnant. And that for some, somehow, this baby is going to be Jesus. Which she knows is somehow related to the Messiah, the, the Savior of the world. Now, what would you do if you're a 15-year-old girl living in a little town with good reputation, godly living, everyone knows you, and then the angel tells you that? See, when I was thinking about this passage... Um, this is, I'm trying to see, if I'm married, what questions would I have? And then the more I thought about it, I, I, if I'm married, I'm saying, well, how would, how would Joseph respond? Like, what could, what could she possibly tell Joseph that he would believe? Oh, you know, she's minding my own business, and the angel spoke to me, and guess what? I'm pregnant. How would he respond? And then I'm thinking, well, maybe if I was married, you know, it's, it's, I, I will go through a process. Of, I'm a teenage mom. In a very traditional society, and if you were here when I spoke about three weeks ago, I said this is a shame culture. So when you do something wrong, you will be shamed forever. And Mary is saying, well, I'm a single mom, 15-year-old girl. There goes my reputation. What will my people say? Now, it gets even more crazy because... Her being a 15-year-old girl, single mom, means that not only she will be um, put to shame forever, but everyone would know that that baby was an, an, uh, a baby out of wedlock. 
She knows that. You know what it means to have a single mom and knows that your kid would always be shamed publicly? She's processing all of this, a 15-year-old girl. Now, the more I thought about it, the more, okay, so uh, I'm a single mom, 15-year-old, my baby doesn't have a father, you know, per se, right? And then everyone would always label me and mark me as, a, as, a, as an unfaithful woman, even though I've never been an unfaithful woman. Forever. Young, single, pregnant, and rejected. Where would she go? A 15-year-old girl, where would she go? See, back in those days when you were part of a community, you stayed in that community forever. If you were living with your family, you lived with your family forever. Actually, this thing that we have in the modern world in which a family member lives in that part of the world and the other family lives in that part of the world was unheard of. They always lived together because they helped one another and helped and protected one another. And where would she go? What would her parents say? And on top of that, for being a woman that slept with someone that was not the husband, she will be labeled as a disgraced woman, meaning that she was, you could say, double disgraced. One, because she was a woman back in those days. And two, because being a, an unfaithful woman was the bottom of the bottom in the social ladder. What would you do? See, if you really want to understand what Advent is all about, you got to try to think what Mary was thinking. You have to understand what she was going through. Yeah, God, God is about to give her this amazing gift of grace. I get that. But she's thinking about all the implications of what that means. If it was me, back in those days, having that conversation with, angel, with the angel, I would say, well, thank you, but no thank you. Because I don't understand the whole process. I know what this is coming. God is asking her to do something so hard, so hard, that the best option was to not do it. Interesting, interesting thing, though, is that she doesn't have an option. What is she going to say to the angel? She has no option. Because she understands that it's the Lord speaking through the angel. And it's God's plans, God's desire for her life. So when we think about us having difficult lives, let's think about Mary for a second. It's just a different story. And she's full of fear. What I realize in my own personal walk with the Lord is that whenever he asks me to do something that is nothing at all like this, I'm always full of fear. What will you do? Let me tell you what the society tells you what you should do when, I, when you're fear. One, one is could be find distractions. You know, because somehow if, you've, if you get yourself distracted, then you won't feel the fear. But you know that only, that only works for a few seconds, right? When you find yourself in a quiet place, distractions don't work. Keep yourself busy, and that only works for a few seconds, you know? Because when you start being busy, your fear is still there. People deal with fears in so many different ways. And what I'm asking Mary is, how is it that she dealt with her fear? God is calling her to do something extremely, extremely hard. Once again, don't take from Mary her humanity. If you don't, understand, you don't see her as a human being, you cannot understand this story. 
So just because this is a family here, how many of you guys thought, have ever thought of Mary in those terms? Few of you. Now, I want you to see how crucial what she's about to do is for her. So let's go through the process. Because I believe that this is the same process we sh should all go through. Actually, I want to argue that the way she dealt with her fears is the same way we should deal with our fears. Actually, I would, I would like to argue that if we don't learn how to deal with our fears the way she was dealing with her fear, you're probably, probably not a Christian. I'm not saying that you're not. I'm saying probably. Because there's only one way for us to confront uh, our emotions and whatever we go through. So um, let's read verse 29 together here for a second. It says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greetings this might be. Now, um, the Bible that we use in the church is, is NIV, which I really love. I think it's an amazing Bible. Um, this is one of those times in which the NIV doesn't help me when I'm trying to uh, preach the sermon. Because the word wonder there is not a very good translation. I, I understand what they translate. I'm not a scholar, okay? I'm, I'm super ignorant about that stuff. But I know that that word is not a good translation. Um, and this one, I will go with the ESV. And the ESV will use the word discern. Two different things. Wonder could be translated like, what's happening? That's wondering, right? Discerning is taking the time to think. Isn't that crazy? It's not about emotions. It's not about feelings, whatever you feel. It's not about having this, uh, this moment with God in which you feel something, mm, I'm going to have a baby. Nothing like that. You can see the process. It doesn't matter how, how well she felt, how good she was feeling. Nobody will deal with this thing by having good feelings. Therefore, she takes a different approach. Discernment. Or in this translation, wondering. The word in the original could actually be translated as thinking hard. It is to reason with yourself. It is to, um, actually the word is almost like accounting. It's doing an accounting process. You know, when you're putting everything together, so I have so much money, this is how much I spent, this is how much I left. Going through that process, the accounting process, that's what that word means. During this process, she takes the time to think and think through the process and ask questions and um, argue with herself. Interesting enough, the word meditation in the Bible means exactly that. Argue with yourself. Convince yourself. Look at the evidence. Think about this. A 15-year-old girl, a pregnant 15-year-old girl, a girl that knows that could go through shame forever. And instead of running and instead of trying to distract herself and instead of, instead of trying to be busy, she thinks and she reasons. Actually, the word meditation, you guys ever seen a cow? Um, what she does after she eats? They chew forever. Have you seen that? It's like chewing gum. Mm -hmm. You know, so when I was a little one, uh, uh, when I was little, my mom would always say, whenever I was eating gum, she would say, you look like a cow. Because that's what cow does all the time. Did you guys know that? I hope you knew that. 
That would be like really bad if you don't know that. I go back to fifth grade. But the idea here is that she goes through that mental meditation, thinking, reasoning process. And this is how she confronts her struggles and her fears. Thinking. You know, I find that word so interesting, especially in modern times. Because if, if there's something that people accuse Christianity of, is not being thinkers. Actually, the argument that from the secular perspective is that Christians don't know how to think because faith, according to them, is not about thinking. It's about jumping into whatever without thinking. There's nothing farther away from the truth. Christian faith is a thinking faith. It's a logic faith. It's looking at who God is and what he claims to be. And look at the evidences time after time. And the more you think, the more you reason, the more you convince yourself. Nothing wrong with emotions. Nothing wrong with experiences. But that is not Christian faith. The Christian faith requires that a 15-year-old girl thinks. Tim Keller calls this, what she's doing, a spiritual doubt. And he makes a distinction, and I agree completely with him. He makes a distinction between what a spiritual doubt is for a Christian and a spiritual doubt is for a secular person. A secular person, for a secular person, a spiritual doubt is, I doubt this, but I'm not interested in finding answers. I just don't, I just don't believe it. But a spiritual doubt for a Christian is that you have questions, and it's okay to have questions. You just want answers. And you search for answers. Martin Lloyd-Jones called Christianity logic and fire. Faith is about believing without having all the answers. But faith is about believing because we have plenty of answers. This is not part of my notes, so I don't know if I should spend some time in this. Yes, I will. So, um, I, I used this example in, in North Avenue uh, campus a few weeks ago because I realized that this is something that a lot of uh, Christians struggle with for some reason. Number one, some Christians believe that you're not supposed to have questions, but the Christian faith invites you to have questions. Like, how many of you guys know everything about God and the Bible already? Because maybe we should worship you. But the Christian faith demands that you think and that you have questions, and it's okay to have questions. But this is part of the thinking process, is that um, you, we, we have enough answers to believe what we need to believe we have in, without having all the answers just yet. So, for example, if you ask me, Hannibal, how do you know, why would God allow suffering? Do you guys know why God allows suffering? I mean, we have some, some, some answers, right? Why would someone get a cancer? Why would someone die? Why would someone lose a baby? Why, you know, all these questions. I, so I'm going to give you the most theological answer I could give you. Listen up. I don't know. But this I know. That the Bible tells me that God is good. And the Bible tells me that he is faithful. And the Bible tells me that he never walks away from his people. 
And he tells me that he's a God of covenants. You know, he makes a commitment and he never walks away. And he tells me that God that is all wise and omnipotent. He's always in control and he's sovereign. He's got control of everything. He's got a plan for everything. He works providentially. Everything goes according to his plans. This is, the, this is what I know from the Bible. So I don't know why God always allows suffering. What I do know, though, is that he's not doing it to punish me. Does that make sense? And that he's still good. Because I have enough information. And it's this thinking, reasoning, believing process. Yo, I don't have all the answers. But I have enough answers to believe. And that's exactly what Mary is going through. And when you see Jesus' interactions with other people, you see that he would always invite people to think. You remember this encounter in Matthew chapter, uh, um, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is having a conversation with Pharisees and Sadducees. And they're asking Jesus for signs and wonders in order for them to believe. That was the argument. And then Jesus comes back and says, listen, you want signs? You want me to show you how powerful? And you want me to show you that I'm the Messiah? And he says, uh, paraphrasing, he says, this is so ironic, you guys, he says. You know how to read the sky. You know how to see the weather. You know that when the sky gets dark, it's about to rain. You know how to do that, but you cannot see the signs that prove that I'm the Messiah. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says that we do that because we suppress the truth. In a way, Jesus is saying to these people, you think that you know, but you're not thinking hard enough. Because if you think hard enough, you will, get to the, you will come to the conclusion that I am the Messiah. Second th- uh, Timothy chapter 2, Paul says this, think, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think, and the Lord will give you understanding. This is our, the human responsibility is for us to think. And the Lord is the one that gives us understanding. Same in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, Jesus calls us to love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. I hope you know that I don't have any issues with emotions. I like emotions. I hope you know that there's nothing wrong with sometimes having this experience. There's nothing wrong with experiences. But you cannot reduce your Christianity to that. Actually, this week I was reading um, this, this uh, studies that say, why is it that people don't read the Bible? And part of the reason why people don't read the Bible is because they, they got used to reading the Bible and having to have this, this cozy feeling of encounter with God. And I, I, I don't know if there's something wrong with me, but I read the Bible six times a week, seven, if I don't count Sunday, right? Six times a week. And um, I probably get one of those once a week, if any. That's not the primary reason why we read the Bible. That's not the primary reason why you come to church and you want to worship. That makes you feel something. The reason why we read the Bible is to get truth. And the reason why we worship the God, God, the God that we have, is not so we feel something, but because who God is. It's not the emotion. Is not the experience. You get tired of that really fast. This is Mary. 
a 15-year-old girl going through the hardest thing in her life, knowing that she could be labeled as, a, as, as, a, as an adulterous woman, knowing that her baby, baby will be labeled forever, knowing that she could lose her fiancé or husband, soon-to-be husband, knowing that she would be marked forever. And she thought, she reasoned. John Piper has an amazing book called Think, and this is what he says. Our thinking should be wholly engaged to do all it can, it can to awaken and express the heartfelt fullness of treasuring God above all things. Translation, think so you learn how to uh, delight and treasure God above everything else. And this is what he says. If we don't learn how to think, we will never find Jesus as, this, as a sin forgiver, as a rescuer from hell, as a healer, as a protector, as a prosperity giver, as a creator, as the Lord of history. It is only when we think that we find him more glorious, more beautiful, more wonderful, more satisfying than everything else in the universe. If we don't think, we won't prize him or treasure him or cherish him or delight in him as he truly is. So let me really quick explain the dynamic, the difference between the mind, the soul, and the heart. I actually believe that those three words in the Bible uh, are synonyms. Uh, this is the opinion of people that hold my doctrine. Um, I think that they're very close together and they have different, you could say, some differences. The soul is what makes us different to any other living creature like animals, right? The heart is the place where you have your will and your emotions and uh, where, where whatever you treasure, that's where it is, right? Whatever you love the most. But your mind is what informs that. So here, let me push it a little bit more. Have you ever heard anybody or maybe one of you saying, well, I, I, I want the Lord to speak to me so I know what to do, how to do his will. Nothing wrong with that prayer. Um, but most likely what the Lord is going to say, he already said. Most likely, most of the time. Not all the time, but most of the time. Whatever you have here affects what you have here. Whatever you think affects your will. Whatever you think affects your emotions. Whatever you feel affects everything inside of you. You cannot have an encounter with God in here if he's not here. That's Mary. A 15-year-old girl is teaching us how to live Christianity. A 15-year-old girl is telling us that Advent is not just about Jesus coming here. It's about thinking, why is it that Jesus came here? And looking into the implications of why is it that Jesus had to come here? C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, he's got a great argument. He says that human beings, if, 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 uh, if you ever read that book, I actually recommend it. It's fiction, but it's good. And it's, it's the devil speaking to his nephew or 
some sort of a level, uh, devil speaking to his nephew, and he says that the best way he's, he's arguing, he's teaching his nephew how to treat Christians into stop being Christians. And he says that the best way to, cre- to treat a Christian is to, um, is, uh, oh, is to have, is to teach them what real life looks like without having them ask the question, what is real life? His argument is the more you can distract Christians' thinkings, the more you're going to win. It's all about your head. It's, it's, it's about your head. It has to do with your will and it has to do with your emotions, but it has to do with your head. Nobody could go to Mary and say, hey, Mary, did you feel good when the angel spoke to you? No, the text says that she was full of fear. Didn't you feel the amazing power of God's presence when, she, when, he, when the angel told you that you were going to be pregnant? No, the, the, the text says that she was full of fear. Now, I want, I want to walk you through the process really good. Look at here. Just pay attention. Verse 29, she hears this and starts to discern. In verse 30, says that she was afraid, even though God was extending grace to her. In verse 31, she hears that she's going to have a baby and that the name is going to be Jesus. In verse 32, the angel says, this is the determined that that baby will be great. And that he will be called the son of the most high, and that that baby will be a great king, a king forever. And Mary is still thinking, trying to discern, and in verse 35, um, uh, the angel tells her that this is going to be the son of God. And by verse 36, um, she hears about this miracle that, he's, that Elizabeth is also going to have a baby. And by verse 37, which we're going to get back in a second, it says, nothing is impossible with God. It's all reasoning, 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 thinking, 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 thinking. Look at what the Bible says. Look what the angel says. Look at the history. There's no reason why I should doubt God. That's what's her thinking. So why talk about this in Advent? Because this is a season in which we are called to do everything but to stop and think. You know, I see that with my family. We do everything during Advent season. But our primary call is stop and think what this means. And that thinking is what changed Mary, and that thinking is what led her to do what she did. So look at, her, look at the result, point number three, and look at verse 38. Because she responds, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel, the angel left her. You know what that means, right? I am your slave. That word servant there, we put the word servant because people get offended nowadays, but the word is slave. I am your slave, God. May your will be done. That was the result. So if you're wondering why is it that sometimes we struggle so much with obedience, I would say that many times it's because we're not thinking hard enough. Part of the reason why we struggle with fears and insecurities and, and all this stuff is because we're not thinking hard enough. Or even more, where we're thinking about the wrong things. But I guarantee you that if we have the process, especially during this Advent season, of thinking 
who Jesus is and we came to do, I guarantee you that you, your life is actually different. This is Mary. This is Mary saying, I, I don't know if Joseph is going to leave me. But I am your slave and I'm going to do, do everything according to your will. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be ashamed, uh, labeled a, shame, a shameful person forever, but this is what I know, that I'm your slave and I'm going to do according to your word. I know that my baby will be rejected by all. But after thinking about this, I have to say I am, I am your slave and I'm going to go according to your will. I know that my life will be complicated, but this I know, that my Lord is faithful, that he's the most high, and that everything... That I'm, a, I'm her slave, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go according to her will, to your will. Now, this is the interesting thing, though, that she, didn't, she did that, and she didn't know what we know today. This is crazy to me. She did not know at that time that Jesus was going to go to the cross and die for her sins. She didn't know that. She knew that Jesus would be the Savior of the world, but she didn't know exactly how. And yet with that process of information, she had enough to be faithful and obedient. Can you imagine what our life would be if we actually do the same? That we have the whole information. That we have something better than simply a, a message from an angel. I would like to argue that even if an angel comes today and speaks to us again today, not even that message will be compared to what we already know about Jesus. Not only that Jesus came to be a savior, but that Jesus came to be a savior by going to the cross first. Not just to be abandoned the way Mary could be abandoned, but to literally be abandoned at the cross by God the Father. Why have you forsaken me? Not to be maybe rejected like Mary was rejected, but to be literally rejected. Not only by the disciples, not only by the followers, not only by the people that didn't like him, but rejected by God. If Mary was able to live her Christianity with the very little information she had, can you imagine what Christianity would be like if we actually really pay attention to what Jesus did? Advent is about celebration. Advent is about rejoicing. Advent is about enjoying all of this. Advent is about having meals and singing and all of that stuff. But more than that, Advent is a time in which we stop and chew on God and who, what he has already done in Jesus Christ. That's what we do. That's our call. Amen? All right. We, we, um, we're going to do communion right now, but I, I want to do something a little bit different. Um, there, there's a way of seeing communion. Um, well, there's so many different ways to see communion, but I, I think that communion is one of those places in which you, your head really needs to work. Um, and it's a place in which you always got to ask this question. Why does God love me? Have you ever asked that question? Why would God love me? So, for example, I do this exercise all the time, but when, when I pay attention to, the, to, to my thoughts, for example, and the thoughts I've had, when, when I pay attention to the words I've said, right, when I pay attention to my motives, 
right? The intentions of my heart. When I pay attention to that, I come to the conclusion that there's no reason, no reason whatsoever why God would love me. Actually, I came to the conclusion that whenever I do this exercise, the more I think about it, the more I realize that I, I could probably behave like Adam and Eve and run away from God and hide from him. So the question remains, why would God love you? Do you know why he loves you? Is the most theological answer I could give you. Because. Isn't that crazy? That is the biblical answer. Because. You know, the Israelites uh, back in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, they're having the same struggle. Why would Jesus come in Advent? Why, why Advent? They had the same struggle. Why would God love us? And God loves us. God says that he didn't love him because they were more than anybody else or because they had all these great power and stuff like that. What he tells them is that he loved them because he loved them. Advent has no logical explanation from a human perspective. There's no reason why Jesus would come not only as a baby, but would go to the cross to surrender his body and shed his blood. No logical explanation from a human perspective, except because he loved you. And that's enough. Even if you don't feel it. So I don't know how your month was. And I don't know how your week was. I don't know what you have said or thought or did. I have no idea what you have done. But this I know. That if you're here and you're hearing this, it's because he loves you. And that's it. So I want to give you a few seconds. The Bible always calls us before participating in communion to take a time and, and examine our hearts to see if there's anything there that you need to surrender to the Lord. Maybe you need to ask forgiveness. Maybe you, you need to accept forgiveness. Maybe there's something that you need to surrender to the Lord. And the Bible says that those that participate in this should be the ones that have already placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Those of us that believe that he's truly, truly the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no other way to the Father except through him. So I'm going to give you a few seconds, just examine your heart before we participate. Then we take the cups and we participate together. Lord, as we think about Advent, and as we heard the message from Mary's experience, what it means to have a Christian faith, this is one of those times in which 
understanding, thinking, and believing that the only reason why we're here is because you are a God of love is so important. To understand, Lord, that we're not here simply because uh, we earned it or worked for it or, or deserved this, Lord. The only reason why we are here is because you loved us. It's because you are a God of grace. It's because in Jesus we have, been, we have found favor with you, just the same way as Mary found favor with you. Lord, and I pray that as we uh, participate in communion, you make this real. That you give us the understanding, Lord, that what matters at the end of the day is not what we feel and is not what we do. It's what you did in Jesus Christ. And what that says about you, that you are for us. Please make this real. As we listen to the lyrics of this song. Give me pass the plates. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, cheese for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You might participate. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You may participate. Lord, just as these elements enter into our system, may the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ enter into our hearts. That just as these uh, elements go into our system, may the reality that God is for us and love us enter into our hearts. Pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>